0: we as doctors get so frustrated when we recommend, when we know a therapy, when we know what a patient needs, and we know we need to have a diagnosis to help us get them that need met, and yet we run into an administrative economic barrier that is not anticipated.
1: That was AMA immediate past president Dr. Gerald Harmon. In this episode of Moving Medicine, he shares his personal story handling a prior authorization request for his mother's medication from someone in the trenches, both as a caregiver for
0: my mom, as a uh, advocate for her, and as a frontline physician provider. It's an ongoing battle, and I fear that we're, we're losing it. You know, some of our data points indicate that as many as 80% of patients will just abandon the recommended treatment, whether it's a prescription, whether it's an imaging study, whether it's a procedure. They'll give up because of their uh, frustrations and or the cost or the delay in access to care. And now uh, the doctors continue to advocate for them, but the patient is the, the one who has to pay the price. And that's so frustrating for us in, in healthcare.
1: Dr. Harmon also shares his strategies for navigating the system to improve care for his patients. Here's Dr. Gerald Harmon.
0: I've had my own personal tribulations and experiences with the, the uh, challenges of prior authorization. My mom is 92. She's in an assisted living facility and uh, is very well cared for there, and it's been very stable. She has a, a couple of medical issues, and because of her insurance coverage having changed at, at the request and the mandate of her insurance Carrier, uh, the first of this calendar year, I found myself the recipient of uh, a request to obtain prior authorization for the, her medications, even though she'd been stable on them for the better part of a decade. Mom is ninety-two. She has high blood pressure. She has memory challenges. She has a history of thromboembolic disease, and on a number of medications that are are quite in, quite important and and required for her day-to-day safety and health. Well, I got a phone call from her, her nurses at the facility, and they said, Dr. Harmon. We need you to handle her uh, medication requirements because uh, we've gotten notice from her insurance coverage that we're going to have to uh, contact them before they continue the medications. And I'm thinking, well, that was very frustrating for me, but I I got the data. I have power of attorney from my mom, and I uh, called the uh, insurance coverage person, and they said, well, we have a new Medicare Advantage plan for your mom, and it requires – Uh, prior authorization for these medications, and I said, you know, she's been stable on these medicines for the better part of a decade. She has substantial medical issues. She's had to be hospitalized before when her medicines aren't right. I'd like for her to continue, and I believe they're all generic medicines with the exception of one brand name, so they're relatively inexpensive compared to what they might be. Can we just not continue that? Oh, no, we're not allowed to continue. They must be prior authorized. And uh, I said, well, all right, You know this is going to be a very complicated process, but I'll I'll I'll, uh, do this, and so I had to then reach out to uh, the pharmacies and had to reach out to the uh, her prior uh, excuse me her family medicine doctor, and, and we had to go through a substantial amount of effort. It's so frustrating. It was so frustrating for me to deal with this because you know. Not everybody has a physician son, or a physician power of attorney holder, or a nurse, or a healthcare specialist. Not everybody has the president of the AMA as, as her, her son or, or, or daughter to be able to intervene on this behalf. And of course, I never talked to any of the uh, uh, prior authorization team about me being a physician or about me being president of the AMA, because that's, that's not germane to the topic. The topic was to get my mom's medications continued safely. But I found myself using the argument that if she's stable now, and we cause an interruption in her care, then she's at high risk. Don't, don't you have some boundaries that allow you to make exceptions? No, we're not allowed to have exceptions. And I said, well, goodness gracious, can I do anything for Maya? No, you just need to know. We need to have the doctor call us and talk to it. And so it, it was really, you know, number one, it took me 30 minutes on hold to get through to somebody because I had an L-800 number. Thank goodness it was a uh, uh, an admin day when I could sit at my desk and do that and put the... The phone on speakerphone, and then I, I had all insurance papers and everything in front of me, so I could talk intelligently about it. But and they were very polite, I will tell you. But they were very adamant, and they were very structured in their answers. Uh, I had no uh, recourse except to s- turn this information over to her healthcare provider, her her doctor. And he was very pleasant about it. And we know from personal experience, and we know from our data, uh, that it takes the average doctor two weekdays, two workdays every week. to to handle prior authorizations in his or her practice. On average, about 40 a week by the average doctor in America. This puts these 92-year-olds at substantial risk. It put my mom at substantial risk for her. These are generic medications. She's stable on them. They were going to even ask us to do what's called step therapy, which means start at the bottom dosing and are an alternative to work towards these very economically already advantageous, very stable medications, but there was no rhyme nor reason available to this. I cannot imagine the the burden that the average patient and or the caregiver runs into if they don't know some of the nuances of this. And of course, nuances didn't help. It was so structured, there was just only one way to fill in the dots, to to connect the dots. Uh, This is not a safe way. I I would use the term, this ain't no way to run a railroad. I mean, it just isn't. The the trains are going to collide, clearly. I I, I just cannot imagine how the average 92-year-old a 75-year-old can do this i it's not just my mom. Of course, that was my personal frustration. As a provider, I run into this all the time. What's interesting as a provider is I'll get phone calls uh, from my patients, not from the insurance companies. It's always the patient who is bearing the burden of the administrative delay. You know, they didn't call my mom's doctor, they meaning the insurance company or the prior authorization of pharmacy benefit manager. They called uh, the nurse get, delivering the care of the patient. And, of course, mom didn't know what to do with this. She gets a phone call, and the nurse says, you've got to call. So... The first touch point is not the prescriber or the healthcare uh, professional; it's the patient who is bombarded with this litany of paperwork, of regulations, and said, "You've got to do this. Your doctor's got to do this." Uh, and, and the, of course, the patient says, "Well, why isn't Doctor Harmon doing this? Why isn't Doctor X doing this? You know, uh, aren't they doing their job?" They start having a little bit of loss of confidence in the doctor, and I get. Just last week, I got a phone call from a patient of mine that's been my patient for 35 years. He's stable as a type 2 diabetic. He's been stable on this current SGLP2 uh, inhibitor. And and he says, Jerry, you've got to call uh, uh, a pharmacy benefit manager to continue my medications that I'm stable on. They're only going to give me 30 more days, and I'm going to run out of medicine. So you've got to call them." And uh, they didn't bother calling me to give me a heads up that I've got... The patient's running out of medicine, and they want me to change his medication. This LGL, SGLT2 inhibitor, he's very stable on to a totally different one that they want him they cover the current one that he's on. They've changed his formulary without his knowledge or without my knowledge. I've already tried a couple of times to call him and get, uh, get through to him, but I haven't been able to do it. This is so uh, typical of the benefit managers and prior authorization process, it's all about Economics for the insurance company, economics for the benefit managers, but not for health and safety of the patient. It's so frustrating to me. And, of course, the patient assumes that I'm in charge of all this. And I really would like to be, but I'm not empowered to be until I talk to someone on the phone to try to change their mind about my rationale. And frequently in some of our uh, benefit manager prioritization discussions, I'm not allowed the opportunity to have a peer-to-peer relationship. So I can't talk to a healthcare professional. I have to talk to someone who's reading from a script, who's reading from a checklist, who looks it up in the book, who says, Dr. Harmon, this is all we're allowed to do. We have the following choices. You can do this, and we uh, only approve these following benefits. Occasionally, I get to talk to a pharmacist, which is a a real relief to talk to someone with clinical training. But really talking to a peer-to-peer would be my ultimate goal because I think I convince them of the position from my uh, perspective and what I'm doing for the patient and why the alternatives they may suggest would not be appropriate nor safe. That's the trials and tribulations of the prior authorization process from the frontline reporter, from someone in the trenches, both as a caregiver for my mom, uh, as a advocate for her, and as a frontline physician provider. It's an ongoing battle, and I fear that we're, we're losing it. You know, some of our data points indicate that as many as 80% of patients will just abandon the recommended treatment, whether it's a prescription, whether it's an imaging study, whether it's a procedure. They'll give up because of their uh, frustrations and or the cost, or the delay in access to care. and uh, The doctors continue to advocate for them, but the patient is the, the one who has to pay the price. And that's so frustrating for us at, in healthcare. care. We can have lots of policy and thought process where we don't want, uh, let's say, the legislature, politicians and regulators in the physician-patient relationship. We sure don't want an insurance company and or someone whose only interest is economic benefit, to determine the medications and the type of medications and timing of medications for, for patients, that's so frustrating. It also frustrates me as a, uh, a physician at a, at a broader plane that, it, as far as I can tell, the rationale for this is not clinical; it is apparently just economic, and it's economic pressures for the, uh, for the payers, in my opinion, and that's what's frustrating. and And in my mom's episode, I can tell you that if there's any cost savings because of anything they're doing economically, surely not pass along to the patient. Her medications, her co-payments, and her deductibles go up every year. So I don't see any economic benefits to her as a patient, nor to me as a caregiver for her, so that also is a little bit of friction. Now, now with regard to the fact that the insurance companies and or the benefit managers typically don't reach out to the providers or the doctors that's also a standard operating procedure in my experience. The first time I usually hear about the need to change medications is from the patient, who calls my office, leaves a voicemail, leaves a, a message on my phone, or sends me an email, that says, "You know, Doctor Harmon, you've got to do something about my medications. The insurance company tells me they've sent you several messages and you haven't responded, and I'm within I'm in my last two weeks of prescriptions and I can't get a refill without you calling them, and renewing my prescription." and this is the messaging that my patient is getting from the insurance company and or the benefit manager that Dr. Harmon's not responding. Dr. Harmon is not doing his or her job. And now, they know me that, that but they're, they're, they're calling me not in an accusatory, but, hey, you know, they're besmirching your reputation. They're thinking you're not doing your job. I know you better than that. What can I do to help? And unfortunately for the patient, they really can't do anything either. They've already got a contract. Certainly in the Medicare Advantage plan, you know, there's there's a reauthorization uh, uh, or, or or certification period, but it closes out, so you can't go back and change your insurance plan after the end date. So they're kind of stuck uh, in this marriage until another year before they can annul it or or go forward. So it's real frustrating for them. They can't change their insurance company. They certainly can't change their benefit manager. They didn't have any input. Any they don't even know where the prior authorization is until they can't get their prescriptions and they only have two weeks left. Uh, it, it is so challenging there. I'll tell you that we as doctors, we shouldn't have to uh, defend the insurance companies to our patients, which we find uh, doing. And, and uh, I, I do explain to them that the insurance company should let me know and the benefit manager needs to do it. But I also explain that it is the bane of my existence, that uh, I use the statistic of you know two work days a week for the average doctor trying to do all this paperwork. And, and let me tell you an example that I also have. If I'm trying to do a prior authorization, sometimes my nurse or or my medical technician or myself, depending on who's got the most time available, will find that we have to call for a prior authorization. And we can't do it electronically. We actually have to call on the phone, the old-fashioned telephone. We have to call an 800 number or some number. And then we have to give them all the data. We have to give them the insurance information. We have to give them the patient's date of birth, things like that. And then what they do is they give us then an authorization to fax them the information. So I've called them to get permission to fax them a request. They can't even do it on the phone. They said, well, here, you need to fax us all the data. They don't have an electronic repository so I can send them the data points. I have to use what I call a 20th century technology and fax them, basically print up some paper and fax it to them or send them electronic fax, so then they can review it at their discretion, their leisure, and then once they've got it, I've got to call them while they discuss the facts. That's another barrier and obstacle to care. This incredibly time-consuming, has no value added, uh, and it seems uh, antithetical to trying to get prior authorization. What I really am getting is a prior authorization to get a prior authorization. And to try to explain that to the patient, they look at me and they said, you mean you have to do that just to get my blood pressure medicine? Oh yeah, Bob, I have to do that just to get your blood pressure medicine. And well, Am I diabetes? Med- yep, that's what I have to do, Bob. I, it is so frustrating. Well, you know, I'm doing pretty good on this diabetes medicine. Yeah, you really are. Your A1C is below seven. You're right where I want it to be. And they want me to change you to a different medication because this current medication is not covered on their new formulary. Well, nobody told me that. Well, no, they didn't. And they certainly didn't ask me before you changed your plan or before they changed your formulary. They just do it for economic reasons. Uh, all medications are not equivalent, all people are not equivalent. What your body is responding to now is a result of some time and effort and you and I working together on your diet and your activity. And then we put in your health care at risk while they do an administrative change. Uh, that, that, that's, that's where I think a lot of doctors just throw their hands up uh, with the with benefit manager and the prior authorization process. To me, the economic cost uh, of this is sometimes immeasurable. You really can't put it in too many words, but we do know that while this patient and these patients, the the one I'll call Bob, called me the other day about his uh, medication needing to be changed because it was not on this new benefit, you know, he's still working. He's on Medicare. He's early 70s, but he's still working. He's having to spend a substantial amount of his time uh, dealing with this uh, pharmacy benefit manager and the insurance coverage for his formulary, and he's having to, you know, reach out to me and wait for me to call him back and my nurse to try to call him back. And we're scrambling to uh, keep him healthy because now he's only got two weeks of medication. So I'm having him come by the office to get some samples of a new medication while I'm still trying to argue that he doesn't need to be changing this. If he's going to have to change it before I can give him 90 days of a medication, I'm going to have to do my own internal step therapy to make sure he's getting his medication and safely and not putting his health care at risk. So he's taking time away from his job, his work, and that's lost time that no one's paying for. So there's an economic loss to him as a, a business. The I don't think the employers understand the lost revenue cost and the lost opportunity cost to their uh, employees who are each having their own uh, issues with their benefit managers for their own prescriptions, whether it's for blood pressure, diabetes, behavior modification, uh, arthritis-type medicines, indigestion, the GI medicines, all the plethora of medications that we deal with physicians, especially in family medicine and primary care. A lot of lost opportunity costs where people are having to to deal with the administrative hassle of continuing a stable medical regimen. And that's a, a huge economic loss. It uh, basically is is underwritten by the em- employers who lose it in efficiency and productivity among their workers. The insurance companies just continue to take the premiums, and in good faith the employer pays those premiums and or the employee has a deducted from his or her paycheck, expecting that this type of administrative hassle would never interfere with their health and their health care.
1: Medicine doesn't stand still, and neither do we. AMA members don't just keep up with medicine, they shape its future. Help move medicine? Join the movement. Visit AMA assnorg movingmedicine.
0: Because of prior authorization delays, not only is the patient frustrated and the doctor frustrated in having to take time changing his or her medications, there's some substantial health care risk. And it has occurred in my practice where folks, while we're adjusting their blood pressure medications, they wind up having to go to the Mertie's room. And on some occasions, they've had uncontrolled blood pressure and our over blood pressure, either high or low, both of which can cause them to fall, both of which can cause them a neurologic event, uh, both of which can contribute to injury from doing that. I had a patient earlier this year that had a, an episode of continued dizziness, and he had seen my partner, seen various doctors in the community, and uh, he had some uncoordination problems. He was having some difficulty, believe it or not, playing golf. He was having some, some troubles when he bent over. He was a little dizzy. When he was walking uh, on the golf course, he'd be a little bit uh, asymmetric in his walking. And he had been to some doctors. He does have diabetes, and they thought it might be related to his diabetes and his blood pressure. Well, one of the things I thought about, he was also having a little bit of challenge cognitively, was maybe he could have something called normal pressure hydrocephalus, which is a uh, kind of an atypical neurologic condition that's kind of uncommon. Uh, the best way to look at this sometimes is with an MRI. Since it's affecting his balance, I also want to look at the bottom part of his brain called the, the cerebellum or the lower part of the brain, which is where your balance center is in your, your body. And the ordinary CT imaging, or CAT scans, only pick up the midbrain up. They don't really pick up the midbrain down, and the balance centers may not be affected. He would had a CT of his head that was benign for his age, And I wanted to get a a more uh, extensive look at his lower brain to look at uh, what's going on there that would affect his balance center. He has a Medicare Advantage plan, and the Medicare Advantage benefit manager denied the uh, MRI that I had ordered. And let me tell you, when we do an MRI, there's not a lot of radiation. That's one of the benefits of of magnetic uh, resonant imaging. It doesn't use a lot of contrast, if any. It doesn't use a lot of radiation. It is a magnet. So the benefit manager's rationale, in my opinion, as a clinician, for restricting access to an MRI is economic only. It's not like there's an appropriate use criteria as much for magnetic resonance imaging as there is for CT scans, which have a lot of dye and more radiation. It can have substantial radiation-induced injury should you pile up a number of radiologic procedures on someone inappropriately. So uh, to me, this is an economic barrier only for clinical care. I had to argue with substantially. I spent about 20 to 30 minutes discussing with the benefit manager and the rationale for me doing the uh, MRI. And it took me a week with a couple of phone calls, faxing faxing again, the documentation of what had happened before that radiology imaging procedure was approved for that colleague. And sure enough, uh, he had a normal pressure hydrocephalus, which is a can be a surgical disease. I called up a neurosurgeon colleague of mine, he said, yeah, you did the right thing getting an MRI. It looks like him. Let's work him up for a procedure. He's in the process of getting that done now. But that delay in in care, while it didn't necessarily put him at substantial risk immediately, he could have fallen. Uh, He's 70. He's trying to be active on the golf course. He could have injured himself. And the delay in care was only economic, in my opinion. The delay in diagnosis was only economic. It delayed, With the diagnosis being delayed, then we Had to delay his care because we weren't sure what to treat him with. This is this is so continuing, uh, such a continual barrier that in a frustration to doctors and uh, uh, to patients when a doctor that they trust recommends a procedure and a study or a medication, and they find that the folks that they paid premiums to to provide coverage and I think has been marketed to them. very slickly, that we've got your coverage, we've got a broad base, you've got all the care you need, we have neurosurgical, we have pharmacologic coverage, we have x-ray coverage, if you need care, it's in our network. But then when they put those barriers up, it's not so fast. We as doctors get so frustrated when we recommend, when we know a therapy, when we know what a patient needs, and we know we need to have a diagnosis to help us get them that need met, and yet we run into an administrative economic barrier that it's not anticipated. It just it frustrates us immensely, and, and, and that's one of the, I guess, the burnout uh, stimulus problems that I find in young doctors and even older doctors. They get kind of tired of fighting against the system on behalf of their patients. They know what's best. They've got the training and experience. They have no economic incentive for th- themselves. It's not like I own an MRI unit or I have an imaging center or I have a pharmacy. I just know what my patient needs, and so I'm doing it, with a an independent uh, approach, I'm doing it because it's best for the patient. And when I get these barriers thrown up, it really kind of wears on me and my uh, my frustration grows, but I, one of the things I have to do is, is stay focused. I really have to stay focused and have to continue to, to bulldog that approach to get my patient care. That wears on a lot of doctors. They, they get incredibly frustrated, the patient's uh, are delayed in care, and that's why I think we we know the statistics that show as many as 80% of patients don't have it, just basically give up. It's just, it's, they wear them down. They wear us down sometimes, they meaning the barrier erectors, as it were, the benefit managers and the insurance companies and their narrowed networks. Within my medical practice, within our group of family medicine specialists that I work with, and we have a... A team-based approach to responding to the prior benefit prior authorization uh, handling. It's not one person because it, it really it becomes a team approach. We sometimes use our medical assistants, we use our nursing assistants, we use LPNs, RNs. Many times the doctor is has find we find that the physician is probably the most efficient weapon system to use against it. So what we wind up doing is I'll ask my nurse Lisa and I'll say Lisa would you try to get all the data together on Mr. Martin or Mr. Jones or Mrs. Smith's suggestions or needs, and then we'll gather the data so that I have the numbers in my hand, and then if you'll make the phone call, and I know you can do this while I'm doing patient care, and we'll, we'll have a, a type of phone line, unfortunately, we'll call the 800 number, whatever number we're provided, to start working on this, because there's no electronic format, there's no standardized electronic format. We've advocated for that for years now The AMA, to have a standardized electronic format, and a common language so that we have a common operating picture. That doesn't exist. That's in our our request, and our joint statement that we came up with about four or five years ago that said this needs to be done. We haven't had a lot of progress done on that either. But we then, I'll, has, I'll have my medical assistant get them on the phone. And then she'll say, let me get Dr. Harmon real quick, and I'll come to the phone and I'll talk to them. Generally, it's not a clinical person, though. It is a benefit manager who's reading from a script and or a textbook or a checklist or things like that. If and I try to be very polite. I find that you get a whole lot more, you know, with with sugar than you do with vinegar. Okay, so you got to be nice. And you know, I don't try to patronize the person on the phone. And say, hey, thank y'all for coming. And I use my Southern dialect a little bit for you know. And I, even though I might be talking to someone that's not only on the not only in my neighborhood, but not on even on the continent, but at least I try to talk in a very slow, not uh, frustrating manner. And I'll say, hey, I'm calling on behalf of Mr. Smith. We're trying to get her uh, an x-ray. We're trying to get her this medication to renew it. She's been very stable on it. What can I do to help you get your job done is how I approach it, and I'll talk to them about it. you know you just you can try to get that done and if they say, well, Dr. Harmon, her benefit plan says this she has to do this or you have to do this and I will say well you know is there any way I can talk uh, you know do you have clinical training? Can I talk with a pharmacist or can I talk with a peer to peers at a request and on rare occasions, they'll let me do that. But on most of the times, they'll say, we'll have the peer-to-peer call you back at some convenient time, I and mean, I don't know when that'll be. Uh, it, but that's our process. We do try our best to get it done. I will tell you that the nurse and our the nursing assistant in my practice probably does get by with about 60 to 75%. They can do it, but it takes them more than one phone call. It takes them more than one day. Uh, it probably takes them a, an hour, each patient on each case you know 20 minute intervals things like that that's my experience and that's what my my nursing staff they get very frustrated too but they they kinda see the way I handle it and that's what they do and our statistics show that 75 to 80 percent of those that we do this across the enterprise are approved if we can get through the barriers and talk to someone that allows us to get the approval you know where the 82 percent number fallout occurs is they just don't have that patience your time or they can't connect up with the right person on the other end to, to get the, da- the, the data transmitted and the job done. That's when the patient's at, at risk for uh, bad outcomes and are, uh, permanent injury or even death. That's when the risk occurs, when their delay in diagnosis and our care occurs. Again, I think what we've seen is this is almost overwhelming for economic reasons. And the economic benefit is only to the insurance company or the third-party benefit manager. With regard to getting prior authorizations, whether it's an imaging study, whether it's a procedure, or whether it's a medication, on rare occasion, I am denied an access to a peer-to-peer. About s- several months ago, I was discharging a patient after taking care of him in the hospital. I was doing a hospital shift. and This patient had pulmonary artery hypertension, uh, which is a... Uh, an increasingly common condition where the right side of the heart uh, is having trouble pumping blood through the lungs to get oxygen and so the, the right side of the heart is struggling. You can have what's called right-sided heart failure from pulmonary artery hypertension. And there's the treatments, there are some medical treatments. There are not a lot of surgical treatments. We're working on new treatments, technology. Thank goodness we're getting better at everything. As, as we see this disease progress, we're developing new treatments. Now there are a couple of medical treatments, it's prescription drugs that you can use that will benefit this type of disease. I was discharging a patient from the hospital with a medication that would treat pulmonary artery hypertension. Um, this person was uh, not of Medicare age, so it had a uh, a standard uh, community benefit manager, not a Medicare, not a federal benefit manager, but it was a uh, traditional indemnity insurance coverage. and. Typically, my experience has been, or a hospital experience has been, for the pharmacy. When we write a prescription that's a new medication for a patient upon discharge, we um, have a a clinical pharmacologist or or a a benefit manager check a prescription out to make sure that the the prescribed medication will be covered by the patient so that when they get discharged, they'll be able to go to the drugstore or pharmacy and get their medicines and not have bad outcomes. I mean, we've learned to do this. We've learned to anticipate the prior authorization process, which is... I mean, it's another uh, unanticipated cost that we'd bear ourselves in the healthcare industry. The insurance company doesn't pay for this, and the pharmacy benefit managers don't. But we know in our, in our small-town hospital system that there's a chance the patient won't be able to get this medication. Uh, even though it's a generic medicine, it should be available at a reasonable price, any barrier sometimes to, to care will be borne by the patient, and sometimes they don't have the economic wherewithal to even pay a $20 prescription copay or something like that. So we, we tried to test it out. I found out, and the pharmacologist in our hospital system had tested this prescription and said, Dr. Harmon, before Mrs. Jones goes home, we need prior authorization because this medication won't be covered on her prescription drug plan. So I said, okay, good. I'm glad we caught it now versus when she got home and came back a week later with worsening right heart failure. Then when she said, I, I can't take my medicine, we don't always have the uh, uh, the availability for them to see their, their doctor within 48 hours of discharge too. So I don't know what would have happened to her. Anyway, I called the pharmacy benefit manager, number that was provided through our uh, research. And I asked if we could uh, prescribe it, told them the reasons. And they said, Dr. Harm, that's not our formula. We can't give her that medication. Well, there's not a lot of alternatives. There's not a lot of alternative drugs for pulmonary hypertension. I said, listen, I really need to talk to a doctor to explain this to him. Can you allow that to happen? No. We don't allow that in our plan either. So I couldn't talk to a doctor about a doctor condition that's not so rare that the doctors won't know about it. And they understand pulmonary artery hypertension can cause pretty catastrophic outcomes. Uh, You you can have heart failure. You can have blood clots. You can die. You can lose consciousness. All these things. So what I did, uh, I called a pharmacy friend of mine and I said, hey, do you this is now generic medicine, but there may be still still some brand name samples. Do you think you can go through your drugs and find it? And he's, he's a pharmacist. He said, yeah, I got a month worth. Let me go, let me go find you some. And I said, listen, Uh, I told the patient, I need to have your home address and I'll get this delivered to you when you get home. She said, well, Dr. Harmon, you're so nice. I said, well, I'm just being a doctor. We got to take care of you. So we and I had to work till 7 p.m., so I, I went ahead and, and had the the pharmacy friend of mine drop them off in my office, and I said, put it in the, the laboratory samples, nobody will pick it up. And I went by and got it, and then I dropped her off at a home. You know, But that's 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 an extraordinary cost of care that is only borne by the doctors or the patients or the hospitals and the practices. That's No one pays for that. It's the economic impediment, the barrier to prior authorization sets up, and it's caused... By narrow networks, by lack of uh, 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 economic coverage, and a lack of, uh, I think, uh, contractual obligations being met. That's why there's legislative, we have legislative opportunities within the Congress that AMA is very supportive of. Uh, there is a uh, Protecting Seniors Access to Care Act, and a House bill and in a Senate bill, both of which is active legislation that we very much support within the AMA and other uh, uh, health care agencies. It has a lot of the joint uh, concerns that we uh, put in our manifesto together working with the American Pharmaceutical Association, American Hospital Association, the AMA, about four years ago in 2018 or so, when we said these are the expectations for prior authorization and for uh, uh, meeting the uh, the needs of the patient, the expectations of the healthcare system and the prescriber's expectations. And this is in the uh, Protecting Seniors Access to Care Act. It just needs to be passed. We need to hold accountable with legislation, the benefit managers and the insurance companies, so that patients are not put at risk, and doctors can have confidence that their recommendations for treatment, diagnosis, and therapy will be followed. And we have workarounds. If we work around. We we we're, we run into these roadblocks uh, to, to delivering care. If it's a pharmacy, a benefit manager, if it's a uh, uh, a narrow network, if it's a formulary, lack of coverage, we work with a lot of diligence, a lot of energy uh, to do this. But there aren't enough doctors that have enough time. There aren't enough nurses and pharmacists that have enough time to meet the unmet needs of everybody. And I find that this is where we also run into uh, into the reality of a lack of health equity because not everybody has a country doctor near them. They don't have a hospital near them. They live a long way off from a hospital. They don't always have the hospital... Uh, benefit managers check on their prescription drugs when they go home. They don't always find this out until they go to the pharmacy the next day and the pharmacist says, hey, I'm sorry, Mr. Brown or Mrs. Jones, this is going to cost you $200 because it's not covered by your insurance. And, of course, then the patient has to decide, do I have gasoline in my car? Do I have food for my family? Can I afford to take another week off of work while I go through this hassle? Or can I just say, no thanks, I can't take the medicine and put their health at risk. This is unacceptable. We cannot continue in this unhealthy pathway for no obvious reason other than economic advantage of the healthcare care industry, of the health insurance industry. We as doctors, are, and the problem we also find with prior authorization as a physician is we don't know what we don't know. A lot of times when you're having a patient that has a, complexity of uh, medical issues, you you tend to have maybe one hospitalist, one internist, one family medicine doctor in the ambulatory environment who's seeing one perspective. The, uh, The complicated patient sometimes goes to three or four different medical specialists, and he or she will get advice from those three or four different medical specialists, and they'll have prescriptions maybe for each disorder, maybe from the pulmonologist, maybe from the gastroenterologist, maybe from the cardiologist, and if they have the good fortune of having a primary care medical home, then that primary care medical quarterback can sometimes help with all these complex medical prescriptions, but not everybody has access to a primary care medical home. We have, unfortunately, we just don't have enough of us doctors or primary care medical specialists to meet all the needs of a a growing burden of chronic disease patients. So these folks are put at substantial risk when they leave their specialist, very specialist offices, With prescriptions, sometimes for life-saving or life-maintaining medications, and they get to the pharmacy and they find that they don't have coverage. It it is it is such a a high-risk environment, especially with the multiple disease, chronic disease patient, that it needs to have some reform with the centralization of the prior authorization process, perhaps a a more highly regulated, highly integrated uh, drug listing system as it were. I find one of my most complex issues in healthcare in the hospitalized patient or even in my ambulatory patient is what we call medication reconciliation or med rec. And you might have a bunch of prescriptions on one list and you ask the patient, hey, Mr. Brown or Ms. Smith or Mr. Martin, are you taking these five medications? I can only afford three of them, so I'm only taking three. You don't find that out till they come to the hospital or they come to your office and you find out then because they were either didn't have time or embarrassed to tell you they couldn't afford their medication. So one of the, the methods I use as a workaround, when I'm calling a, a prescription in or offering a new prescription for a patient, is I'll ask the patient, what pharmacy do you use? And in, in, in small-town America, it's usually one pharmacy. We know where they are. But it may be a, uh, the pharmacy can be a local pharmacy, an independent pharmacy. It can be a chain pharmacy. And also, just we'll call the pharmacist and uh I'll say I'm going to call about Emily, or I'm going to call about Jerry, or something, and I'm going to I'm going to prescribe this new medication. Do you mind when you have time to run a claim? And uh, you don't have to do it right now. Do it over the next hour, and I'll call you back. And uh, they'll say, "Stand by, Doctor Harmon. I'll see what I can do. I have just a moment." They'll run it and say, "No, it's not going to be covered." I said, "What what other class of medication might be covered?" And the pharmacist and I will take our energy, our expense, and and assume all the the risk, as it were, and we'll do that for the patient because we're dedicated. And I'll tell you, most doctors and most pharmacists are are doing just that. Again, that's an underwritten cost uh, that we deliver on our own nickel, as it were. So the pharmacy benefit managers the insurance companies and the formulary de- developers don't even see. But we will do that. We'll run a, a claim just to find out what it will be covered. And then it may be three times before I find I get a hit. I'll strike out on a couple of them, and I'll say, well, let's look at the, can you run this kind? Can you run this kind? If it's an antihypertensive, can I use a calcium blocker? Can I use an angiotensin receptor blocker? I'll run those different types, but I know that really I need to be in an, an ARB or an ACE inhibitor uh, frame, and I'll find out which one of those particular types of medication will be covered by the formulary. Uh, that's Again, that's a, a cost we assume on our own for the benefit of the patient. But that's a workaround that should not have to be there. We should have immediate transparency. In today's world of electronic records, my electrons ought to access the company's electrons with the formulary because they take enough dollars for their premiums that they ought to be able to provide that resource to the patient, to the provider, and the prescriber.
1: Medicine doesn't stand still, and at the AMA, neither do we. AMA members are physicians like you who are shaping the future of medicine. Become a member today and join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. You know, when we talk
0: about regulatory and legislative changes to the prior authorization process, we need to look at. Two different uh, targets. One, of course, when we're talking about Medicare, Medicaid, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services-sponsored coverage, then that needs to be a federal solution. There's no question, and we need to look at the the access to uh, providing access to seniors' care act that we we are advocating for at the AMA level. But in traditional indemnity insurance and traditional coverages, many times our better audience would be the state legislative, the state insurance industry, the uh, uh, the regulators with each each. individual state and or province, they're a better target audience because they really have authority and should, I think, have authority over what goes on within their licensees and their insurance entities within their state. And I think that's a more effective use of our resources. And I think that's where patients can find uh, a positive audience when we take these concerns to them as physicians, as patients, as consumers. So I think that's a good idea. When my patients come in to me and they say, you know, I'm having trouble getting this prescription or we do uh... have to uh, run various claims for the insurance it's not always a medicare insurance or a medicaid patients in fact only about uh... twenty percent of my patients are medicaid and about twenty five percent are medicare so i have almost fifty percent traditional indemnity insurance and those folks usually operate in fact they always operate under the state insurance commissioner so we can address our concerns at the legislative arena for legislative regulatory relief at the state legislators I find that to be very receptive because this is this is where government being local makes a difference and if you can find a, an empathetic and not just a sympathetic legislator whose mama or whose sister, whose spouse or who himself or herself has experienced le- regulatory delay and in, in, again a small town south carolina I, I have a pretty good relationship with many of our uh, legislators in both houses of the state legislator and in the the uh, executive office so we can talk to them about their family member having to bear the burden of prior authorization, so they understand uh, firsthand my issues. That's a good receptive audience because, as I said, not only are they sympathetic, they're empathetic. They've experienced the the aggravation, and they can uh, talk with the uh, uh, with the experience when they try to change the uh, uh, accountability for the insurance companies and the benefit managers at the point of care in in my state. And I think that's a very a rich target environment for us to make regulatory change, I think all of these things resonate when you talk about how it affected your family, how it affected you, how it affected your neighbors it's a um, it's an uphill battle it 's one that we've been continuing to uh contest for the better part of a decade and since i've been on the board of the a m a it's been very frustrating for us um, the uh, The target sometimes is is uh difficult to identify, but I think the prior authorization process seems to be a common uh, tipping point. If we can get uh, an expectation from the insurance industry, from the prior authorization process, to align with our uh, standards that we came to agreement on four or five years ago in our common statement, that's a starting point. I mean, that's not the, uh, uh, the end point, but it's a starting point. If we can start in that way, we can realize how we can make changes, how we can improve health care. And in the long run, not just improve the individual health of individuals with chronic diseases or acute diseases that need long-term medications, we can we can reduce the burden of uh, disease and disability and even death so we can reduce the cost. If we can reduce that economic drain by keeping people from getting sicker and uh, requiring more medications, requiring more medical intervention and care so that they may not need their heart replacement or heart valve replacement, or knee or hip replacement, joint replacement, because they've been controlled with their chronic diseases. Maybe their kidney disease is not as advanced as it would have been if they had gotten on the medications. The blood pressure had been better controlled. They wouldn't be affected by stroke, cardiovascular disease, and heart attacks. Then we can save us money. We're gonna have an increasing burden of disease right now. Let's have a more efficient way of delivering healthcare, in both the preventive as well as the maintenance Uh, approaches to it, so that there's an economic solution that benefits all of us, not just reduction in cost outlying from the the insurance industry right now. I think, you know, there's no question that they have to have fiduciary uh, accountability for their uh, uh, companies, but instead of just looking at this year's budget and this year's Uh, approval process in this year's uh, formulary, maybe they need to look at the long-term outcome. If we can control this long-term, we can reduce the $800 million or $800 billion we spend on cardiovascular disease in the country right now because it's continuing to escalate. Uh, We're doing the best we can to provide better care and better treatments, but if we can reduce the disease burden, that's another way to have a better uh, long-term savings and and, uh, and deliver quality care at a a fair price. One of the approaches we can use to address prior authorization uh, change that's needed and we can address uh, the barriers to care and the uh, negative impact on health care delivery that is now imposed by prior authorization. One of the things we've done at the AMA is we've understood that you You're going to have to get this message out and the need to the regulatory agencies, to the legislatures. We have fixedpriorauth.org. You can share your individual story about your mom, about your sister. If you're a provider, you can share about your patients, your neighbors. And you can tell them, here's what happened to me. Here's why this prior authorization caused me to have a stroke or put me at risk for uh, incapacitation, made me miss, miss a week of work, cost me... Uh, time away or cost my employees, whatever your position is relative to your story, share that story on fixprioroth.org. It's a great website. I've been on it. I've looked at it. I'm, I'll share my stories on it. And I, I encourage my patients to do it. And I uh, tell them to call the insurance commissioner. I, I tell them, South Carolina insurance commissioner in my state, if you call them, they're not going to hang up on you. They're going to answer your phone. They're elected politicians. They're elected government agencies. They need to know because if they don't know, they don't have data to make a decision on. So ask them to call. I said, you're not worrying your legislators to do this. You're not worrying your state senator, your state representative. They need to know what's going on, uh, wh- whether it's a, a broken stoplight, whether it's a uh, an unfair uh, economic practice where somebody is doing something that we need to call about the Better Business Bureau, or something maybe they're operating without a license. If they're doing something that's inappropriate for your health care, let them know. They have the resources. They have their counsel, the uh the accountability and the responsibility to know about this and to act upon it. So I, yeah, encourage our my patients. I encourage my doctor colleagues to get involved legislatively and uh, administratively, and, and share their stories. Because storytelling is not just about you know anecdotes. It's about reality, and it has a personal uh, reflection. That if you can identify, you know, that could be me. That could be my mom. That could be my neighbor. Or, you know, I remember when I had this prescription that I couldn't get filled because it didn't get coverage. Thank goodness it didn't have an adverse event, or maybe I did. But those are ways to do it, and the only way they'll know is if we tell them. What we as doctors, what we as patients, what we as caregivers can do to impact prior authorization right now is to share our stories, FixPriorAuth.org. Use that website, share your story, call your individual state legislators, let them know your concerns, Give them your stories with health care, with prior authorization. You can make a difference, but they need to know about it in order for them to make a difference.
1: For more information on the AMA's fight to fix prior authorization, you can visit fixpriorauth.org and take action. You can subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org podcasts.